to our Lord's Day online gathering. I hope that you're doing well where you are. It's our privilege to greet you this morning. We're so glad that you've joined together with us. Uh, obviously, these are strange days and we're meeting under unusual circumstances, but we're glad that you've taken the time in your home, in your car, wherever it is that you found us this morning uh, to stop, to pause, to spend a little time in the worship of the one who is worthy of all worship, our Savior, Jesus Christ. We hope that you'll reach out to us if you're a first-time visitor to Longview Point. We hope that you'll let us uh, know of that. There's a number of ways that you can communicate that information to us. You can uh, drop us a line in the message section of any of these platforms. Some of you are watching by YouTube, some of you are watching through our website, and some of you are watching on Facebook. Uh, any of those are acceptable ways of communicating with us. On our website are all of our email addresses and contact information, as well as phone numbers for our pastoral staff that will appear on the screen at the close of our service this morning. I, I, I want to give you a little update as to what the near future holds for us, if the Lord wills. Our game plan is to continue with online worship through the remainder of May, as well as drive-in services as weather permits. And then on the first Sunday in the month of June, we're going to meet for an outdoor worship service at the lake, the lake here on our property. So if you're not familiar with Longview Point, the directions and address will get you to where you need to be. 
We'll meet there at the lake uh, in the back parking lot beside the church or beside the children's building. And uh, we'll meet there for a worship service. And at the close of that service, we'll celebrate a baptism out in the lake. So that will be an unusual and exciting uh, way of celebrating believers' baptism. And then on the first uh, or on the 14th of June, we'll be back in our worship center for the first time. And I am so anxious to see us back together in the worship center together. We'll have three services on that day so that we can keep capacity at no more than 50%. We'll have an 815 service, which we're reserving for those who are at risk. So if you are a senior adult or uh, a young adult with compromised immunity or an individual with special needs, that 815 service is going to be the safest service for you and we're reserving that for those of you who would like an opportunity to come without potential exposure to the broader church body. At, at 9.30, we'll have a service here in our worship center. The third service will be at 11, and again, we'll try to cap those services at 50% capacity with overflow options in the youth space as well as in the children's building. So be aware of those service times. And uh, if the Lord wills, those will be our service times for the foreseeable future. But those are the plans under which we plan to reopen or begin to meet again here in the building. By now, you should have received in your inbox an email, a video from me, as well as a write-up that explains some of the ins and outs and details of our getting back together again. Hey, I want to lead us in a word of prayer and get our worship service started off uh, by inviting the Lord's blessing and His presence into this meeting. I want to encourage you where you are to bow with me. Let's pray. Father, today we pray that you would be worshipped in spirit and in truth. God, I pray for those listening for your church, God, that we would be revived and renewed and refreshed, Lord, encouraged by a day of resting in Jesus. God, I pray for those who may have come across our service, Lord, without a saving knowledge of Christ. Might today be the day of salvation for those individuals. God, we pray that you'd be pleased to save some today, that you would advance your kingdom in salvation and by fanning the flame of the gospel in the heart of your church, God, that we would be dedicated to the work of advancing your kingdom across the street and around the world. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.
King of glory, holy are none beside thee, perfect in power, my God forever, youer and are and you will be bound before thee. God. 
failures, Lord, you don't, you don't seek perfection in us, Father. You just want us to follow you. And Lord, we want to, oh Lord, we want to be like your son. So this morning, Father, we just thank you for Christ. We thank you, Lord, for what he did for us on the cross, what he paid for us, the penalty that we could not pay ourselves, Lord. You, you bore that for us and we give you glory. So this morning, we just want to say thank you because you are worthy. In Christ alone, my hope is found. He is my light, my strength, my song. This cornerstone, this solid ground, firm through the fiercest drought and storm. 
What heights of love, what depths of peace When fears are still, when striving cease My comforter, my all in all Here in the love of Christ I stand In Christ alone, who took on flesh a fullness of God in helpless babe This gift of love and righteousness Scorned by the ones He came to save Until on that cross as Jesus died The wrath of God was satisfied For every sin on him was laid here in the death of Christ I live
Good morning, Longview Point. Uh, welcome to our Sunday morning sermon, our Sunday morning Bible study. I want to invite you where you are to take your Bibles and turn with me to 1 John chapter 4, verse 20. We're going to look this morning at verses 20 of chapter 4 through verse 13 of chapter 5. I know that by now the novelty of this online format for preaching and teaching has worn off. And if you're like me, you're ready to be assembled in person with the people of God on the Lord's Day um, in this worship center in most cases, and I long for that day as well. But I want to encourage you this morning to bear uh, with this quarantine just uh, one more week, at least for today, and uh, to take your Bibles out, to set aside distractions, to gather your family, your husband, your wife, your children, whatever the case would be, and to give yourself to the study of God's Word this morning. The Bible says that considering Jesus, Hebrew 3 says considering Jesus has a profound impact on our ability to persevere faithfully in the faith once and for all delivered to the saints. So let's join together this morning in the study of God's Word. 1 John chapter 4 beginning in verse number 20. Here's what the Bible says. If anyone says, I love God, yet hates his brother, he is a liar. For the person who doesn't love his brother, whom he's seen, cannot love the God he hasn't seen. And we have this command from him. The one who loves God must also love his brother. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Messiah has been born of God. And everyone who loves the Father also loves the one born of him. This is how we know that we love God's children. When we love God and obey his commands. For this is what love for God is, to keep his commands. Now this command, his command rather, is not a burden, because whatever has been born of God conquers the world. This is the victory that has conquered the world, our faith. And who is the one who conquers the world but the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? Jesus Christ, he is the one who came by water and blood, not by water only, but by water and blood. And the Spirit is the one who testifies, because the Spirit is the truth. For there are three that testify, the Spirit, the water, and the blood. And these three are in agreement. If we accept the testimony of men, God's testimony is greater, because it is God's testimony that He has given about His Son. The one who believes in the Son of God has this testimony within him. The one who doesn't believe God has made him a liar because he hasn't believed in the testimony God has given about his Son. And this is the testimony. God has given us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. The one who has the Son has life. The one who doesn't have the Son of God does not have life. I have written these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. May the Lord bless the reading and the preaching of his word. Chapter 4 concludes in verses 20 and 21 in a way that is uh, familiar to us by now. John gives us yet again uh, this test for evaluating our faith. In fact, his admonition is to test your faith by the standard of love. He says again in verse 20, If anyone says, I love God, yet hates his brother, he is a liar. For the person who doesn't love his brother he has seen cannot love the God he hasn't seen. And we have seen this command from him, or we have this command from him, rather. The one who loves God must also love his brother. So John is arguing from lesser to greater. The man says that he loves God and he hates his brother. He's a liar and there is no truth in him. And then he provides the justification for that. If you cannot or do not love your brother whom you have seen, it is an impossibility that you would love the unseen God. Here again, we're called upon to examine ourselves to see that we're in the faith, that we possess true faith in Jesus Christ. The call of the gospel is to believe on Jesus Christ. But the efforts of mankind since the day that call was issued has been to minimize or reduce in some way 
the strength of that command that we would believe. The New Testament responds to this. Even the demons believe and they tremble. John chapter 2, the Gospel of John chapter 2 describes a scenario in which Jesus goes to Jerusalem and performs many miracles. And there are many who believe, but because Jesus knows what is in their heart, he does not commit himself to them. There is saving faith, and then there is a faith or a belief that simply cannot save. What John is reinforcing here in verses 20 and 21 is this reality, that saving faith, that true faith in Jesus Christ that rescues us from hell and secures us for eternal life in heaven in the presence of the Father, true faith results in a genuine love for brother. The scenario that we've rehearsed many times uh, before in our study of 1 John is that there is an outside group, a group of opponents or cessationists as they're often referred to, and they've separated themselves from the church. There's a hostility in their heart toward those inside the church. John seems to be looking outside the church at that cessationist group and says of them, their conduct is unbecoming of a Christian because they themselves are not Christians. And he capitalizes on this opportunity to remind the brethren, to remind the true church that that kind of hatred, that kind of hostility is never to be named among brothers and sisters in Christ. What John says in these verses drips of the Gospel of John. Specifically, that Lord's Supper discourse where Jesus says to the disciples, By this all men will know that you are my disciples because you have love for one another. John has defined for us in last week's text what love is. He has revealed to us that this is a chief attribute of God's character, that indeed God is love, and now presses on the command that God has called us to, the command that we have heard from the beginning in the language of 1 John, that we are to love our neighbor even as ourselves. It's not an extra, it's not a bonus, it's not secondary to who we are. It's in the DNA of Christian folk, born of God, that we would love our brothers and sisters in Christ. This is the command we have from Him. The one who loves God must also love his brother. So we're called upon to test our faith by the standard of love. Now in chapter 5, there's a little different spin on this idea of evaluating ourselves according to the standard of, of love. Verse 1 says, Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Messiah has been born of God. And everyone who loves the Father also loves the one born of Him. Now there's a great deal to unpack there. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Messiah, that Jesus is the Christ, that's a very succinct way of saying everyone who believes that Jesus is the fulfillment of every Old Testament promise, everyone who believes that Jesus is the fulfillment of every prophecy from God, everyone that believes that Jesus is the long-awaited-for King, that He is prophet, priest, and King, that He's all we've ever longed for, all we've ever needed, everyone who believes that Jesus is precisely who the Bible says that He is, has been born of God. The language of being born of God is relatively unique to John. In the Gospel of John chapter 3, you're familiar with that account where Nicodemus one of the Pharisees comes to Jesus by night. Jesus charges him that except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Even in John chapter 1, John speaks of our being born not of the will of the flesh, nor of blood, not of our striving, not of our labors, but being born of God, born of the Spirit. God has begotten something supernatural in us who have identified by faith with Jesus Christ. Everyone who believes that Jesus is all we've ever hoped for has been begotten of God, has been born of God. And everyone who loves the Father also loves the one born of Him. It's a natural thing 
that those who have been born again would love the born again. There's an incredibly high calling that God has placed on our life to love the brethren. I remember when my oldest child came to faith in Jesus. Now, I, I, there's no one in this world that I love any more than I love my children. But I remember in that moment being struck by the reality that at this moment, there's now a new level of expectation in terms of the love that I show him because now he's more than just a son. He's a brother in Christ. Those of us who have been begotten of God, born again by the power of the Spirit, must necessarily, should naturally, possess a deep and abiding love for those who themselves have been born of the Spirit, born of God. In verse 2, the Bible says, This is how we know that we love God's children, when we love God and obey His commands. Now, this is interesting. This is a twist on what John has been saying up until now. In the past, we've studied passages where God says, where John says, the, the way that you know that you love God is by keeping His commands. Again, this drips with the Gospel of John's content, specifically chapter 14 and the continuation of that Lord's Supper discourse, where Jesus says repeatedly, if you love me, obey my commandments. This is how you measure your love for God, by being obedient to what I've commanded you to do. But in this particular passage, John sort of circles back. And John says, here's how you can know that you love your brother, that you love those who have been born of God. And for that matter, this is how you can know that you love strangers well. You know that you love others well when you love God's children when you and when you obey His commandments. Being obedient to the commandment of God is an indication that you're doing a good job of loving those around you. Honoring the command of God in your life is a way of evaluating your love for others. Am I on the right track or not? The tricky thing that this world does is that it sweeps us into a deception that says that the way we can best love is by giving our assent to the sins, to the unrighteousness, to the often wicked ways of those around us. You look around, you can see a million examples of this. Any effort, it seems, in the 21st century of opposing sin in any shape, form, or fashion is seen as an act of hostility and, and hatred. Recently, even within the span of the last several weeks and the COVID-19 pandemic in this country, we watched Samaritan's Purse or the Sin Relief Organizations go into New York City and be uh, opposed because of biblical convictions. And when they're simply to love neighbor, simply to provide a service, to be the hands and the feet of Jesus, but were characterized as hate groups as they entered into the city. Now, what those who opposed them would have had them to do is to bow the knee to the wind and doctrine of the day to give their consent to the sin that so easily entangles that particular segment of our society. But the way you evaluate your effectiveness at loving your brother is not by the affirmation or the praise or the applause of the world. Have you been obedient to the command of God? This is critically important because we're swept away in this thing, and it's easy to watch something like what happened in New York with Samaritan's Purse or Sin Relief, to see that happening at a distance and identify that. It's a little trickier when it's closer to home. In fact, I'm convinced that this is a big part of why Paul says in 1 Corinthians that unbelievers should not be, or that believers rather, should not be yoked together with unbelievers, that we should not be unequally yoked, because we are, as the Bible says, bound by our affection. We're connected to people affectionately, and so our tendency is to affirm or to give a nod to whatever sin has ensnared or entangled them. The way that you can know that you are loving your family, the way that you can know that you are loving the church, the way that you can know that you are loving strangers well is by evaluating the extent to which you are keeping or honoring the command of God. John told us in verses 20 and 21 of chapter 4 that we are to test our faith by the standard of love, 
But here he instructs us that we are to test our love by the standard of God's word. Yes, there is an element of affection. There is an emotional component of love that cannot and should not be denied. But there's an objective element as well that acknowledges that my heart does not always lead me in a good or healthy direction. That I'm not personally, in the natural man, always a good judge of what is right or wrong for the given moment. But God is. God's Spirit leads well, and God's Word speaks with absolute perfection. So when we find ourselves in that place of confusion or concern, maybe we don't know which direction to go, we always go back to the authority of God's Word. If you want to know, am I loving well, evaluate yourself against the standard of God's Word. Am I honoring the command of God in my efforts at showing love to those around us? Now, you may be in a nuclear family situation with no craziness and everything's functional and healthy for you, and there are no challenges in this area whatsoever. But for the vast majority of the world out there, with very real and difficult issues to navigate within your family and friend group, you know that this can be a very real challenge. How can I best love my troubled neighbor, my troubled relative, my troubled friend, how can I best love my troubled child who's going through an especially difficult season in their life? I may feel called upon by God to do something that's very difficult for me to do. How can I know that I'm loving well? The answer is always God's Word. Test your love, not by how you feel, not by what is easy, but by the standard of God's Word. Verse 3 says, for this is what love, God, love for God is, to keep His commands. Now, His commands are not a burden, because whatever has been born of God, we might say whoever has been born of God, conquers the world. This is the victory that has conquered the world, our faith. And who is the one who conquers the world but the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? This is what it looks like to love God, to honor His commandments. I've come to a place in evangelistic conversations where I'm convinced that this is the better approach. Rather than talking in a Bible Belt culture about believing in God or acknowledging the existence of God, to talk simply about whether or not we love God. In our culture where we live, where most of us have our existence, virtually everyone believes in the existence of God. The question is not whether you believe in the existence of God. The question is, do you love God? And the way we give expression to that is by honoring the command of God in our life. Now, the emphasis here on our having victory in Jesus, victory through our faith in Christ, is the promise that we have overcome our inclination toward bitterness. Those who have opposed us, those who may be prickly and brash and difficult to love, we can overcome those hurdles to fulfilling God's command because of faith we found in Jesus Christ. Who is the one who conquers the world but the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? We have victory. Now, what we'd like to do is to sort of invert this and turn this into ourselves to make this a very self-centered, a very me-focused thing. That's the American Christianity way to go. But what John is saying is that we are not exempt from keeping the command of God, no matter how difficult that may be, because God has enabled us, God has empowered us to give expression to our love for Him by keeping His commandments regardless of the level of difficulty by faith in Jesus Christ. He has empowered and propelled us by the gift of faith that He has granted us to overcome the world. Not that we might beat our chest and celebrate our capacity as overcomers. We are great and proud and greatly to be praised. No, no, and no. God is actively at work in us through the gift of faith that He has granted in order that He might be greatly glorified in our life, that much would be made of His Son, Jesus Christ, because He's again actively at work in us, bringing to perfection that which He has begun by his Spirit, salvation by faith in Jesus Christ. 
So we've been called upon to test our faith by the standard of love. Secondly, to test our love by the standard of God's word. And here, in verses 6 through 13, we're called upon to test the truthfulness of our faith by the testimony of God. You see how these transitions are, are working rather smoothly? We've shifted from this idea of testing the Spirit in the early part of chapter 4 now to testing uh, our faith by our ability to love others. Do we love our brother? That's an indication that we love God. If we fail to love our brother, an indication that we've failed to love God. In verses 1 through 5 of chapter number 5, he's transitioned into this discussion of faith and how we have the ability to love because of the gift of faith that God has given us. But now John seeks to shore up even our ideas concerning faith in verses 6 through 13 so that we understand full well precisely the kind of faith that God intends that we would have. Verse 6 says, Jesus Christ, He is the one who came by water and blood, not by water only, but by water and by blood. And the Spirit is the one who testifies because the Spirit is the truth. For there are three that testify, the Spirit, the water, and the blood. And these three are in agreement. If we accept the testimony of men, God's testimony is greater, because it is God's testimony that He has given about His Son. The one who believes in the Son of God has this testimony within him. The one who doesn't believe God has made him a liar because he's not believed in the testimony of God or the testimony God has given about his son. And this is the testimony. God has given us eternal life and this life is in his son. You may have faith. In fact, you may have great faith. But if your great faith is not fixed on the person and the work of Jesus Christ, it is a faith in futility. Verse 6 again says, and this is sort of a complex few verses, so we'll pick through them phrase by phrase. Jesus Christ, He is the one who came by water and by blood, not by water only, but by water and by blood. Let's unpack that for just a moment. If you'll bear in mind that Paul, or that rather John, is always uh, teaching in a way that's intended to be at, at odds with his opposition, he's always addressing the misconceptions, the misunderstandings, and even the deceptions of the cessationist or the opposition party. He notes first, it seems, that there is a point of agreement between the true church and those who have separated from the church. He is the one, the Bible says, who came by water and by blood, not by water only. Seems to be conceding that we're in agreement. John, the apostles, and the cessationists, the opposition party, we're, we're in agreement that Jesus came by blood, or by water rather. But John contends further that Jesus came not merely by water, but by water and by blood. Now, what in the world does all of this mean, that Jesus came by water and by blood? Anytime this particular phrasing is used, having come by water in the Gospel of John, it's a reference to the baptizing ministry of John the Baptist. Similar language is used in the context of Jesus' own baptism. When God booms forth from heaven and says to those gathered, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. And the Spirit of God descends as a dove in the Gospel of Matthew and other Gospel accounts. This seems to be a reference to the baptizing ministry of Jesus. We might say it's a summary statement for the whole of Jesus' ministry. So Jesus came baptizing. Jesus came doing the work of ministry. Jesus came not only with a baptizing ministry, but additionally by blood. This is a reference, it seems, to the death of Jesus. This is my understanding of the passage, but I think a trustworthy understanding. So we might understand verse 6 to read this way. He is the one who came baptizing 
and dying in this unique way, by the way. Jesus died in a way that's far different than, de than the death of just a martyr, someone who suffered for their faith, or even as an example. Jesus died a vicarious, substitutionary death. Jesus died an atoning death. We might lay down our life to save someone else, but we're limited in terms of the salvation that we might provide. They're saved for the moment. Jesus lays down His life for the salvation of the world. Jesus dies for spiritual salvation. Jesus dies not to save our life for a second. Jesus dies to save our lives eternally. He takes our place on the cross. He becomes our substitute. He satisfies the wrath of God against us in His death. It is that John is saying that the ministry of Jesus... And the unique nature of Jesus' death attest to the true nature of Jesus' gospel. He's the one who came by water and blood. Not by water only, but by water and blood. And the Spirit is the one who testifies. Because the Spirit is the truth. Not only does the ministry of Jesus attest to who He was, truly a unique powerful ministry, a ministry that is not marked by sin. In fact, a ministry that is characterized by absolute righteousness and perfection. There is not a blot or a blemish in the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. The power, the impact of His ministry is attested to by the multitude of changed lives that came forth from that ministry and the willingness of those early disciples to lay down their life for the truthfulness of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The ministry of Jesus, the life of Jesus, testifies to the truthfulness of the gospel. Secondly, the death of Jesus. No one died like Jesus. Even the context in which Jesus dies attests to the truthfulness of the gospel. Midday, the sky grows dark and the earth begins to quake. There's the realization, even on the part of those pagans that participated in the crucifixion, a Roman centurion standing by and saying, truly this man was the Son of God. Not to mention that three days later, the earth began to quake, the stone was rolled away, and the once lifeless body of Jesus Christ began to breathe again. Not to mention that He met with and dined with His disciples. The unique nature of His ministry attests to the truthfulness of the gospel. The unique nature of His death and His resurrection attest to the truthfulness of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And the Spirit of God that abides in us assures us of the truthfulness of the gospel of Jesus Christ. I've tried to think all week of ways to discuss, to articulate the assurance that the Spirit of God grants us. I'm, I'm still at a loss for how to express that, for how to explain that, how on the worst of days... The Spirit of God holds us close, assures us, encourages us, keeps us, and provides grace sufficient for the hour. Apart from the Spirit of God, you cannot understand the truthfulness of the gospel. But brothers and sisters, when God is pleased to grant His Spirit, you cannot deny the truthfulness of the gospel of Jesus Christ. John says, the water, the ministry of Jesus, the blood, the death of Jesus, and the Spirit of God that abides within each of us who have believed in Him testify to the truthfulness of the gospel. Now, if you're familiar with Old Testament law, you're familiar with this idea. It's not just an Old Testament idea. It's an idea that's been prevalent throughout the history of civilization, that it's by the mouth of two or three witnesses that a testimony or a charge uh, receives credibility or is proven. Now, two is good, but three is understood to be sufficient, especially when those three witnesses bear witness together, when they're able to corroborate the testimony of one another. Verse 7 says, For there are three that testify, the Spirit, the water, and the blood. 
And these three are in agreement. If we accept the testimony of men, God's testimony is greater because it is God's testimony that he has given about his son. Now John is summing up the water, the blood, and the spirit as God's testimony. God's witness to mankind, God's testimony to man is the life and ministry of Jesus, the death of Jesus Christ, and I would add to that his resurrection, and the abiding assurance granted the discernment, the, the discernment of truth that is conveyed through the gift of God's Holy Spirit. I get rather frustrated at times at the way we have made this false separation between faith and reason. Brothers and sisters, Christianity is a reasonable faith. The reason that it's reasonable to believe a Middle Eastern Jewish man who claimed he was the Son of God is because after they nailed him to a tree, he rose again from the dead. Now, if you'll point me to any other resurrected people, I'll be gladly to give a faithful, honest, sincere listen to what they have to say concerning life and eternity. But to the best of my knowledge, there is no one else. There is only Christ who could legitimately save himself. I am the resurrection and the life. It is a reasonable thing to, be to believe upon a Savior who has attested himself to the truthfulness of his message by laying down his life in death and taking it up again in resurrection. God has testified himself to the truthfulness of the gospel message proclaimed by his son Jesus Christ through the life, through the death of Jesus, and through the abiding presence of his Holy Spirit. Look at what verse 10 says. The one who believes in the Son of God has this testimony within him. That is the, the presence of the Spirit of God in us bears the testimony of God, the life of Jesus, the death of Jesus, the presence, the abiding presence of God's Holy Spirit. The message that we have heard from the beginning has taken up residence within us. There is an assuredness that is unmatched by anything in this world. We have become confident of the unseen even more so than we might be confident of what is visibly brought before us. The one who doesn't believe, John continues, has made God a liar because he hasn't believed in the testimony of God or the testimony that God has given about his son. This is God's testimony, John says. You either believe it or you don't believe it. In verse 11, he says, this is the testimony. God has given us eternal life and this life is in his Son. There's an interesting thing that John does with the idea of eternal life. When we hear that in our day and age, in our conversations about the Bible, when we talk about that evangelistically, it's almost always understood to be a reference to a life that has no end because of what Jesus has provided us, and certainly that's true. But for John, in 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, and in the Gospel of John, Eternal life is not just living forever. Eternal life is Jesus Christ. Jesus is the great treasure. Jesus is the abundant life. Jesus is eternal life. Eternal life, brothers, is not something that we're waiting to receive in the sweet by and by. It's something that God has given us through the abiding presence of His Holy Spirit in the here and now. Eternal life has been begun in those of us who have been born of the Spirit. And then the certainty with which John speaks in verse 12, look there. The one who has the Son has life. The one who doesn't have the Son of God does not have life. I was in a gospel conversation within the last couple of weeks in my estimation, I'm, I'm not the final judge, but in my estimation, the fruit in this individual's life was entirely indicative of lostness. And the response that I continue to get, question after question after question was, I know who my God is. 
I, I so wish that I had in my quiver at that particular time, verse 12, and I could have communicated with such clarity and simplicity what John states here. The one who has the Son has life. The one who doesn't have the Son of God does not have life. And all that that entails, the full implications of that passage. Ladies and gentlemen, the one who has Jesus has eternal life. And the one who does not have Jesus does not have eternal life. Now, the purpose of John's gospel is not to tear down our confidence in the power of the gospel or to, to rip away at our assuredness in our salvation or our eternal security. Rather, it is to build, to encourage, to bolster that confidence. Look at what verse 13 says. I have written these things so that you, to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, so that you may know that you have eternal life. Now, uh, testing is a major theme in 1 John. But the result of the test that John offers, applied to the life of the believer, is not fear. It's not concern. It's not a lack of peace or the creation of anxiety. The end result of the test applied is assurance of our salvation. John says, I've written these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. Brother, you believe? Rest. You have eternal life. What are your concerns? You believe. You have eternal life. You have believed savingly in the Lord Jesus Christ that at a moment in time in history, God's Son broke into human history, lived without sin, died on the cross, was raised again the third day. We have no worries. We have no burdens. We have no concerns. It makes no difference what happens in our life. On the other side of this existence is hope and peace everlasting. What we know now in part what we see now dimly as in a mirror, we will one day see face to face brought before Jesus. All of our sins and our scars and our sicknesses stripped away when sickness is but a memory, when death is something of the past, when all is made whole and well and right in Christ. You believe. And rest easy. Rest easy. Rest easy. But I, I, would, I would warn you at the same time, for those of you who searched your heart and simply cannot find peace, that there ought to be victory. In Christ, there ought to be assurance. There ought to be the small, the still, the strong voice of the Spirit that whispers assurances even on your saddest, most broken, and worst of days. Do you know Christ? Do you know Him? Do you know Jesus Christ? Oh brother, oh sister, come to trust in Christ and find joy and peace everlasting. He is my strength and stay. The, go the gospel ground upon which I stand. We say this so cavalierly, and I'm not sure that the world around us knows what we mean when we do. But I honestly don't know what I'd do. I've got a good idea where I'd be, but I don't know what I'd do apart from the work of Jesus in my life. Taste and see that indeed He is good. Would you join me in prayer? Father, thank You for Your Word and for its truth. Thank You for Your testimony to the truthfulness of the Gospel the life and ministry of our Savior Jesus, the sacrificial death of your only Son, for the voice of the Spirit that speaks encouragement and assurance into the heart of the true believer. God, I pray for those who are huddled about TVs, computer screens, and smartphones, Lord, that you would impart a peace that passes all understanding as we reckon with the assurance that we have now and forever 
in your Son, Jesus Christ. God, I pray for those who have perhaps stumbled across our broadcast or come our way through any number of circumstances. God, without a saving knowledge of Jesus, I pray that they'd consider the reasonableness of our faith in Christ. The power of the resurrection is testimony to the credibility of all that Jesus said, especially the message of the gospel. Repent and believe, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. God, I pray that your will would be done in the lives of those who watch for every member of the fellowship of our church, God, that the gospel flame in our heart would be kindled anew this morning. Lord, that with gusto and enthusiasm and excitement over eternal life and the joy that abides in us through Jesus, Lord, we might charge the world about us with, these, with this message of eternal life. May the world know what we've come to know by your testimony concerning your Son. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. Folks, I want to encourage you, if the Lord's at work in your life, if today you've believed in the gospel for the salvation of your soul, to reach out to us in some way. You have numbers for our pastors in front of you. You have a variety of messaging options for reaching out to our pastoral staff to uh, com connect with us and share of us commitments that you may be making even right now. And maybe you've believed in the gospel for salvation today. Maybe you've believed in the gospel in days past and wish to be faithful in believer's baptism. Maybe you wish to be joined to the fellowship of this church. Or perhaps there's a way that we could be in prayer for you. You can share those prayer requests at prayer at longviewpoint.org. And we'd absolutely love to hear of how the Lord is at work in your life or ways that we could pray for or minister to a need that's arisen during these strange days that we found ourselves living in. Until we meet again, know that we are praying for you here, that your pastors love you, that just because you're out of sight doesn't mean you're out of mind, that we're anxious to be together with you once again. We hope to see you soon. But until that time and even beyond, be faithful to the Lord Jesus Christ. Rest today, consider today, meditate today on the testimony of God to the truthfulness of the gospel. Look to see you soon. Have a great day in Jesus.